Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. We are out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, or on one of many much-appreciated community radio stations who play us as well elsewhere. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour, and together we are your two hosts today. Normally, Stefan would be... Well, Stefan is joining us later on in the episode. He's just not here right now. He's here as a ghost interviewer, interviewing Brian Rowey who is a solutions journalist, or he's doing a project of solutions journalism, or he was hooked up to Stefan through Solutions Journalism Network, working on a project called Earthbeat with the National Catholic Reporter, which is in the United States. And they're going to be talking about solutions journalism in general, and then I guess they're going to be talking about what one does as a solutions journalist in the face of climate change. And these are journalists who have decided to write about what can be done. People are always like, you know, you're agitating, you're politically messy. Where are your solutions? And... Maybe this guy's got some. Do people well, I mean, say we're po- politically messy? <laughs> no, no, no. I just mean, I just mean, like in my experience of confronting the climate crisis in in general in public over the years, you often this response happens. Like, what what are we supposed to do? Tell us, tell us what we're supposed to do. And so maybe maybe these guys have something like that. I don't know. Well, that'll be good for listeners because the first half of the show is just you and me. And it's going to be news, and then we're going to talk about don't look up. So the first 20 to 25 minutes of the show is going to be an unfortunate bummer. But the last 20 minutes will be solutions-oriented. So that's good. Wonderful solutions, especially as everyone's getting all confused and sad again because of the mixed messaging coming everywhere about COVID-19 and what's supposed to be happening there. You know, even People are even against the CDC now. It's getting really, it's getting really dicey. So, yeah, we're going to start with some climate news, and then we're going to talk about that movie that came out with Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, wonderful actor. Don't even get me started on Timothy Chalamet. I mean, come on. I hate that he is specifically a dirtbag in this movie with a bad wig, and I'm like into it. I like it. I'm here for it. No, yeah, it's good. So, climate news. Preliminary data. And whenever there's the phrase preliminary data, you know you're talking about science. So preliminary data is showing that 2021 was the fifth hottest year on record. A research scientist who spoke with Eric Rostin for Bloomberg said that with more analysis, 2021 will probably end up being between the fifth and seventh hottest year on record. Almost all the hottest years on record have come in the 21st century because we're just climbing that that climbing graph. So, The risk consultancy firm Verisk Maplecroft has put a report out a report saying that 40% of all oil and gas reserves, that's oil and gas that they're banking on to be able to pull out of the earth and sell, are being threatened by the climate crisis. So over 600 billion barrels are at risk, with Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq particularly vulnerable. Right under them was uh, Iran and Russia. As Scarlett Evans writes for Offshore Technology that, quote, the research found just over 10% of the world's commercially recoverable reserves are found in areas deemed extreme risk by the climate change exposure indices, while just under a third are found in sites labeled high risk. And the researchers write, quote, climate-related supply threats to the oil and gas industry have already begun to manifest. This year, a freeze in Texas, so it's 2021, a freeze in Texas knocked U.S. oil and gas output to a three-year low, while Hurricane Ida caused a record 55 spills in the Gulf of Mexico and created historic disruptions to the supply of both crude oil and refined products. Record heat in Russia accelerated the melting permafrost, a trend that has damaged 40% of buildings and infrastructure in northern regions heavily reliant on oil and gas productions. These types of events are going to become more frequent and more extreme, creating even greater shocks within the industry. So Maplecroft, which is the uh, risk consultancy firm, calls on companies to disclose their climate-related financial risks and states that the cost of inaction could be genuinely existential, meaning these industries that whole countries rely upon could dissolve with little warning if nothing is done. So that's a serious story, but I got really caught up in the fact that Verisk Maplecroft, I understand it's a risk consultancy firm, 
it also sounds like the name of like a mean girl at a boarding school. She's got money, status, and she has your number too. And she's a bitch. I think they went with Verisk because combination of the word risk and the idea of verity. It's a true risk. Like this is the true risk. Oh, so it's like a clever thing. Okay. I totally just figured it was like someone's last name. No, that's definitely what it is. Well, good job to Verisk Maplecroft for putting this information out there and just reinforcing that argument that like these things are stranded assets. Do not rely on them to create wealth for you in the future. Not that that should be anyone's (laughs) necessary goal, but like (laughs) it's a bust. (laughs) Get out now. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of those reports that keep saying like, you guys, your companies are screwed and you just need to admit that so that we can know what you're actually worth so that our mark international markets can continue to appear to be working. Like, Just tell us how much money you, th- you're, you actually believe you're going to be able to make here. Um, and the chief investment officer for the second largest pension fund in the United States is saying that ExxonMobil could die as thoroughly as Kodak and Blockbuster if they do not accept that they need to move on from fossil fuels. ExxonMobil is like Blockbuster in whatever year it was, 99, thinking, we're going to go with DVD, HD DVDs. That'll be fine. Or Kodak being like, everyone is still going to want to produce film. I mean, who's not going to want to print film in the future? And uh, so the government-owned Trans Mountain Corporation here in Canada is trying to get the city of Burnaby to allow it to forego the city's fire safety standards at their storage facility that will house 26 tanks of 3.2 million barrels of oil if the pipeline expansion is completed, doubling it from 13 tanks. The Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline could end up costing Canada $20 billion to build, And the company is saying that complying with Burnaby's fire safety standards is too costly. That's nuts. Like, there is no extent to, like, the evil supervillain garbage these companies continue to pull. Like, really, you can't. It's too expensive for you to comply with fire safety standards. If it's too expensive for you to comply with fire safety standards, then, like, maybe your company isn't a viable company anymore. Maybe your business model just can't cut it. That's unbelievable. It, well, it's not unbelievable. It's perfectly believable. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, sorry. I keep interrupting. No, no, no. What's amazing is that it's owned by the government of Canada. So this is a company owned by owned by Canada saying we're not going to comply with the cities, with Burnaby's, the B.C. cities fire safety standards. But they, pro- they probably w- they can be they probably will be forced to maybe. But right now they're saying like, no. They're trying not. They're trying not to comply. I would hope this would go to court. Like I would hope the city would say, "No, you do have to comply with fire safety standards. It's pretty basic. You literally produce an extremely flammable product. So this product is known for its flammability. That is the point of the product. That it catches fire. That's why we have the product. Okay. So also in BC. Wet'suwet'en land defenders took back Coyote Camp last month after it had been raided and burned by the police and are now bracing for another police raid. The Gidimdan checkpoint put out a statement saying, quote, for the, first, the, for the fourth time in four years, we have received information that dozens of militarized RCMP are en route to Wet'suwet'en territory to facilitate construction of the coastal gas link pipeline and to steal our unceded lands at gunpoint. We continue to hold the drill pad site where coastal gasoline plans to tunnel beneath our pristine sacred headwaters. RCMP have booked up local hotels for the next month. We have also received word from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs that the CIRG unit of the RCMP, that's the Community, Indi- that's the Community Industry Response Group, uh, which is meant to facilitate uh, industry desires in the face of community resistance, um, the paramilitary—they're calling it the paramilitary unit that pro- the paramilitary unit that protects private industries who are seeking to destroy indigenous lands are being deployed onto our lands. And uh, Lawyers Rights Watch Canada sent a letter to Canadian and British Columbian authorities last month, calling for quote the removal of the RCMP from Wet'suwet'en territory and for prompt, impartial, and independent and thorough investigation of allegations of unlawful use of force. We also call on the governments of Canada and British Columbia to ensure full and immediate compliance with the December 2019 decision 
of the United Nations uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which calls on Canada to comply with its binding international human rights law obligations to uh, halt construction of the coastal gasoline pipeline in the traditional unceded lands of the Wet'suwet'en people, immediately cease forced eviction of Wet'suwet'en peoples, guarantee that no force will be used against Wet'suwet'en, and ensure that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and associated security and policing services will be withdrawn from their lands. And the letter goes on to say, instead of cooperating with the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, Canada and BC have ignored the decision and continue to facilitate unlawful use of force to violate the fundamental rights and freedoms of Wet'suwet'en peoples and their invitees. Uh, Canadian and BC authorities have used permits, court injunctions, and police powers to override international human rights law and rule of law principles. Finally, a recent report from Canada's Correctional Investigator is showing that almost half of all women in prison in Canada are Indigenous. The news release reads, quote, The proportion of incarcerated Indigenous women has continued to increase unabated and is nearing 50% of all federally sentenced women. Um, and this, the number of, of uh, incarcerated, incarcerated indigenous women has been, has been rising, as the number of, even as the number of, over, of non-indigenous incarcerated women has been going down, which is why now they're reaching halfway. Um, and they also say on January 21st, 2020, the, the Office of the Correctional Investigator reported that the proportion of indigenous men and women in federal cu custody had reached a new historic high, surpassing 30% of, of the overall incarcerated population. The combined men and women indigenous proportion in federal corrections is now 32% and climbing. And Dr. Zinger, who did the report, uh, said, quote, in the very near future, Canada will reach a sad milestone where half of all federally sentenced women in custody will be of Indigenous ancestry, despite representing less than 5% of the total population of women in Canada. So we're back and it's Dave and Lauren, and we're going to talk about don't look up. Cause that's what everybody has been talking about on Twitter for the last, like what week and a half now, when was, when was Christmas? Yeah. A week and a half ago. Um, so Dave, why don't you go first? Cause you just watched it. Like within the last couple of hours, you've watched it. I think I watched it a week ago now. So my thoughts might be a little more stale than yours are. This is, so this is a movie. This is a big movie with a bunch of big actors and it's about a comet that's going to hit earth. By Adam McKay, who people might be familiar with because he did like Step Brothers and Anchorman, but he also did The Big Short. So he's like, I think he pivoted recently. Yeah. So he's pivoted recently to movies that are still comedies, but are like comedies with a message or like comedies with intention because there's like something he's trying to tell the audience about kind of thing. And this is another one of those situations. Um, and yeah, the cast is nuts. It's a big, it's one of those big ensemble ones where it's like, it's Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. And like you said, Timothy Chalamet, but then you've also got like Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill and a bunch of other really fantastic performers. And yeah, it's kind of like an allegory. It's a satire. The premise is that Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, these two scientists have discovered a comet that is, it's going to hit the planet in six months and 14 days. And they're trying to get people to care about it and to act in order to save the planet. And and is, is did the makers of the movie think this is climate change like this is this is trying to represent climate change or is that just something that people have locked on to because it's about science trying to like peer reviewed peer the the idea of peer review plays a central role in this movie and they're like they're they're trying to get that to be the center of the policy about the comet like so yeah. So how, how much is the climate angle intended here or like? It's, 
it's super intended. So I remember first hearing about this movie and this is something that I would have to like go back and Google search to figure out exactly how many years ago, but I remember hearing, oh, Adam McKay is going to make a climate change movie with Leonardo DiCaprio like several years ago. So Mm -hmm. like it was always the intention that this is how it would be interpreted and that like this would be the core conversation coming out of this movie. Okay. So the, uh, yeah. So the idea is that it represents climate change because there's these, these two, these scientists trying to say, you need to deal with this in a scientifically feasible, in a scientifically peer-reviewed, feasible, logical way, and then this uh, capitalist gets who's who has who has the entire uh, American government bought and paid for, convinces them that you can actually make money off of this comet, and so they're going to do uh, their own way. They're going to they're going to not not. Uh, do this the scientific way of destroying the comet but they're going to try to deal with it in a way where they can make it safe but then also uh capitalize it on it as well and this is not uh a peer-reviewed way of doing it and they fail oh so, yeah kind of we're probably gonna there will be some spoilers yeah, I mean, so like it's the the ending of the movie is is pretty obvious i don't think it's a surprise to anyone but just in case if you're if you haven't seen the movie yet and you're listening to this on a podcast hit pause watch it come back yeah, so I mean, I, li- I I liked it. I thought it was good, and I thought that the 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 metaphor doesn't really work because because it's not like right now someone's being like, oh, in in six months and fourteen days we're all doomed unless we turn this ship around. It's not as cut and dry as as that. So like the metaphor itself makes the climate crisis and those dealing with it l- look a little bit silly. I think maybe because. Uh, is simply not as precise. It can and, and it can never be as precise as it is as this as measuring a comet coming to Earth. So the way that people are freaking out about it isn't as obviously like applicable in the sense of there being a strict six month timeline. But I think it 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 does do a really good job. I, f- I feel of um, showing the kind of frustration and and the psychological distress that comes into people when they hear about. The climate crisis and then they try to do something about it or even even a little bit because uh you have this existential disaster coming directly towards you and you see that nobody really is doing nobody really cares that much it has it has these brief moments of salience and then it's just everybody doing their uh you know egotistical celebrity thing focused on whatever that whatever else um you know the contemporary cultural machine has people staring at and so and so in that sense it did it also made people in general look just dumb because they're sort of acting like every single person only cares about is just essentially a social media product but then there and there was a moment in the middle in the middle of it where or when they're getting involved uh with the comment they know it's coming and they start thinking there's it becomes like kind of like a fun thing they're trying to make they're trying to make light of it and um maybe i'll i might cut this out because it's uh weird but it reminded it reminded me distinctly of a, of the worst dream i ever had which was i was in a dark room with a bunch of friends and i was acutely aware that everybody was going to die in 30 minutes but i was also aware that the closer it got to the 30 minute mark uh, we were going to care less and less about our death, imminent doom, and so as, and so the closer we got to death, the less we cared about it, and so everybody became sort of jolly, and the jolliness and the happiness of of, of getting closer and closer to death appeared uh, grotesque and terrible, because uh, it means that the doom is impending, and so and so this not that's that's not, that's not what happened in the movie, but there's a there's a point, there's a, there's a point at which uh, one wants to. Uh, or is or is driven to, in to some extent, make light of an apocalypse, and and, and in addition with the psychological turmoil, it's not just it's not just that you're looking at something and wondering why not everybody is focused on it constantly if it's that terrible. There's also the psychological turmoil of going back and forth, when and especially when you have these parties, right, switching back and forth, government switching back and forth. You think you're going to do something and then you don't, and you think maybe you'll do something now and then you don't. And, it, and there's this tug of war between maybe fixing it, maybe not fixing it. And there's also that stress, which was, I think, nicely uh, showed by the movie. And also the, just the... Sim- and, and I thought it was going to be cliche in the sense of being like, 
or or overdone uh, or stupid in being like it's just so simple as like choosing to look up into the sky or choosing not to look up into the sky at your imminent doom. But it, I thought it was I thought that aspect was actually surprisingly poignant in that they they showed just the the how simple it really is, how simple a choice it really is to fix an impending disaster or not. But just finally, actually I had two I had two more points. One one was that uh it showed well how even the response to trying to save it be, itself becomes a spectacle. So they put on a concert trying to get you to stop the to stop the comet, right? And we put on all people put on climate change concerts and all this different stuff, right, to help um people in need and so forth. And so it shows nicely the how the uh, the attempt to do something good itself becomes a spectacle and part of the cultural apparatus that's that's continuing the uh, the inertia leading to the doom, and um, the uh, the ultimate problem with the metaphor is that climate change is actually be much sadder than this was. In this, everybody's sitting around and it ends in a flash, whereas with climate change, it's going to be like a slow creep and a, and a, and a decision that less affected countries are going to make whether to help uh, a whole b- billions of people who are being destroyed by these disasters. And so if, if, climate, if we do nothing on climate change, it's going to be much worse than a, than a comet hitting the Earth. It's, it's going to be this much more gradual brutalization as we realize that uh, we're going to protect ourselves instead of others. And, uh, and we're just going to watch right, it unfold. And it's it's true that like climate change is affecting North America, but it but it's also true that other people are going to be destroyed much sooner, and other people are going to be affected much more, much faster. And so, with climate change, it's actually a much sadder reality than the comet, and a much slower one. And so, in that sense, there's even less glamour than the movie pretended there was. The movie than the movie suggests about about climate change. I disagree a little bit about like the effectiveness of the metaphor because at the end of the day it is like it's a movie and they're trying to like contain a story within two hours and like you said it's kind of trying to be like snappy and shiny but ultimately I I basically agree with everything you said I think I think you're right (laughs) the reality of climate change is much more depressing for the reason you said that it'll be much more drawn out and it and it won't be everybody it won't be like you said gone in a flash where it's a few moments of horror and then it's over it's like (laughs) poor decisions being made over and over and over again over the course of decades and decades and people being forced over and over again to see the people and the places they love um, disappear. But um, yeah, lots of thoughts about the movie online, obviously. Is it a perfect film, even just as a, from a movie standpoint? No, it's not. The pacing's a bit off. It's, it's kind of long. Um, is it a perfect representation of how we're actually fighting planetary disaster? No, uh, there's literally no reference to true grassroots power. There's some kind of like astroturf movement building that happens very like a la Coney 2012. Um, but there's no like actual like grassroots community led power, um, at play here. Uh, it doesn't really display any efforts of like non-right, non-white or like non-imperial state actors. But, um, again, it's, it's a Hollywood movie made by a millionaire white person. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there are some, constraints that if you are able to accept the movie for what it is it can still be um if not an enjoyable experience an experience that resonates um what I do think it did capture really well kind of echoing a lot of what you said um David is that like I think it captured really well the way in which we in the west because this movie ultimately was about the western experience of planetary crisis um the way we sort of lose like the forest for the trees um, and we're caught in the sort of like the stranglehold that is capitalism. Like you said, you referenced the sort of like Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs by way of Elon Musk character that kind of steps in and simultaneously ruins everything as he says he's trying to save it. Um, and it, and it also did sort of speak truthfully to the reality is that like the West does bear the brunt of the responsibility and does wield sort of like an outsized amount of power. Um, and our wealth allows us to fund solutions in a way that like many other, um, many other societies are unable to. So like, for instance, it's like, um, at one point in the movie, like China, Russia, and there's another country and they team together to try to, 
save the planet and they're unable to do so. And the States gets like a couple tries and his name. Anyway, it was, it did get into that a little bit in terms of just trying to, trying to display the outsized power that the West wields. Um, but, uh, what it, what it did do ultimately, I think for me, uh, was it, it, it did a good job of capturing sort of like the absolute stakes, maybe in, in a way that was a little bit over dramatized in, like you said, in the way that it's like, it's a, it's a comet hitting a planet in six months, as opposed to decades and decades of, of planetary disaster. But there was a, there's a moment that, um, a character said, and I think it's probably Leonardo DiCaprio, but I'm not sure, but the character said, we really had it all, didn't we? And that was a really sort of like poignant, resonant, uh, moment for me. Um, and I found myself like really, really <laughs> depressed in the days following watching this movie. I had a nice, uh, thankfully I watched it over my Christmas break. So I could just lay in bed for a couple days. Cause that is what happened. Um, and I think what happened is like, um, I'm somebody who is lucky enough to work on sort of like within the climate community for my job. Um, and I think about, and in that sense, I think about climate change sort of every day for work, but, um, I think about climate change in the way that like lots of people think about their work is sort of like on a day-to-day small scale basis. Like you put one foot in front of the other, you knock one item off your to-do list. You maybe you send an email, you sit on a zoom call, et cetera. Um, because if I thought about the actual stakes of climate change every day, all the time, like I just couldn't handle it. <laughs> I, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. So by keeping my head down and just sort of like looking to the next item on my to-do list, that's how I sort of like cope with the horror of reality. And then I feel like that's something that like two years into a pandemic, a lot of people are, are familiar with that compartmentalization. Um, but a couple of times a year, maybe once or twice, um, something kind of punches through or like I let something punch through that sort of like reminds me of like this sort of like all encompassing nightmare of climate change and the like myriad of planetary disasters that play out. Um, and for me, don't look up was one of those moments, um, specifically as the movie progressed in like sort of like the latter third of the movie, um, there were like shots of like babies laughing and people in love and happy animals and beautiful places that were like increasingly spliced in as the movie sort of reached its climax. And I imagine that like, those were shots that the director put in there to sort of like remind us of everything that we stand to lose and like all that we still have, um, and all of the incredible beauty that like, we're so lucky to be a part of as people who are alive right now. Um, And it reminded me of a really popular passage from Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot, that David, you reminded me, has been read aloud on this show before. And what's happening in this passage is Carl Sagan is describing the Pale Blue Dot, which is an image that was taken of Earth in 1990 during um, the Voyager mission, when these two twin ships were sent out, um, equipped with cameras. And eventually, at the end of their mission, just before the cameras were turned off, they spun around and they snapped a photo of earth, um, right when they were at the edge of the solar system. And really all it looks like is like the earth is just visible as this tiny little pixel in this sort of like heavenly beam of colored glass of colored gas. And, um, and he goes on to sort of talk about what he thinks about when he sees that image. Um, so yeah, Carl Sagan writes, uh, look again at that dot that's here. That's home. That's us on it. Everyone you love, everyone, you know, everyone you've ever heard of, Every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, Every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our our imagined self-importance, 
the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. My name is Seven Hostetter, and I am here with a interview. It's the first time we've had you on the show. Brian Rowey, a reporter for EarthBeat, which is a project for the National Catholic Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. We were connected by the Solutions Journalism Network, who we've had different folks coming on talking about different reporting they have done using the sort of Solutions Journalism mindset of reporting. And so perhaps you can give us an overview of how that came together for you, and then also of this particular series that we're talking about. Sure. We learned that the Solutions Journalism Network was issuing a number of grants related to that intersection of solutions journalism and environmental initiatives. And EarthBeat is a project, like you said, of National Catholic Reporter. So we really look at that intersection of faith and climate and how communities of faith are approaching climate change, responding to it, and also looking um, at solutions to it, as well as the wider environmental issues that the planet's facing. So for us, my editor, Barbara Frazier, she actually was the one who sparked this idea. She was aware that there were several religious communities, notably in the upstate New York, Hudson Valley area, who had taken steps to establish conservation easements for portions of their land. And she thought that this was going to be a great fit for kind of what Solutions Journalism Network was looking for in terms of how are people utilizing resources that they have in response to climate change as being part of those solutions. And we had heard of other congregations um, across the U.S. who had taken similar steps as well. So this project really just gave us that opportunity to dive deeper into this area and learn more about what was happening. Awesome. And so that segues perfectly to my next question, which is what was happening? Maybe not everyone is familiar with the idea of what an easement is or the ways that these could be used. So yeah, if you can just let us know, you know what were these groups doing? Sure. So a conservation easement is just basically by law a protection for lands stating how it can, and most importantly, how it cannot be used. So uh, they're very popular in conservation circles. I believe there's statistic about in the U.S. around 56 million acres have been conserved through land trusts, which is also another term for conservation easement. So as a whole, that's not a very large portion. Uh, I think the U.S. has about 2.27 billion acres in all. So 56 million is not exactly a large portion, but there is a lot of action going on in this area, including among religious communities. So myself and another reporter, Chris Furlinger, we went and looked in different parts of the country to find out what, how these different congregations of Catholic sisters were approaching conservation. And a lot of them were looking at it through the idea of a land trust of setting aside a portion of this land that for many of them, they've had in their property for for decades, in some cases, a, a century or more. And a lot of these congregations are older, they're aging, and they've come to these kind of decisions where the idea of land management and conservation has come up for these sisters through discussions about where the future of their congregations lie as they're getting older and their numbers start to dwindle. So this has very much been a part of long-range planning for these congregations. So I went out in 
the Midwest here in the U.S. and visited with congregations in Iowa, in Wisconsin, and Minnesota, most of them along the Mississippi River, while Chris was focused really looking at different congregations in New York's Hudson Valley area. And like I said, the main way that people were, or the way that these congregations were looking to preserve their lands and to approach conservation was exploring conservation easements, these land trusts, where they set aside a portion of the lands. In some cases, it was a very easy process where they worked with state land trust organizations, or if there was a nonprofit land trust organization, sometimes the county worked with establishing conservation easements. Other times, the congregations weren't ready to do this kind of step. So they've explored other different possibilities. One of them being in Wisconsin, there's a congregation called the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration outside of La Crosse. And their congregation wasn't ready yet to go full into a conservation easement because one of the things is that these are permanent. So the way a land trust works is that should laws change, the easement and the stipulations that are um, spelled out under it would persevere, would be preserved. For some, the idea of the permanence is actually a scary thing because what if there's some use for the land that's necessary for the congregation further down the line? What if there's a need to sell off the lands for something like that? And this congregation in particular, the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, weren't ready yet. So what they've done is they basically, they have about 200 acres and have turned that land over into a bunch of different ecological projects. They have a farm, they have a greenhouse, they are starting to partner with the local community for growing their own food. So there's a lot of different approaches, but I would just say across all the congregations that we talked about, there's four motivations that were really driving them that you could see across them. First and foremost was just their faith and the values that they espouse as Catholics, as Catholic sisters, that they view the land as having value in and of itself. It has intrinsic value. It's not just about what you can do or, or what might be valuable on it, that the land itself is valuable. And that's something that all of them stress. For a number of them also, environmental concerns is a big thing. It's been something they've been going back, in some cases, decades to the early points of the environmental movement. There have been Catholic sisters who've been a part of that. A lot of them have also talked about the idea of preventing development from the area, whether to protect the environment or local ecosystems, or to just prevent their land that they've had this long attachment to becoming another shopping mall, a parking lot, whatever it may be. And related to that, the last motivation that I've noticed is just a witness to the wider public. Some of them have been very straightforward and said that we want this to be a symbol to our community about what we value and what we should be valuing. Cool. And so I wonder if I can pick up on that last little bit about the signal to community, because I know in some of your reporting, you talk about just how huge of a landowner the Catholic Church continues to be within land across not only North America, but the world. And I'm curious if from your reporting, how widespread is this kind of thinking within the Catholic Church? Is this something we'd expect to see spread and, and will could be a real significant boon to conservation efforts? Or is this sort of a few congregations here and there who are doing this and we should expect the Catholic Church to do other stuff with their land more likely? No, that's a great question. And just to kind of start, as you mentioned, the Catholic Church is a large landowner. I think we've seen estimates that it owns 177 million acres globally, which according to the University of Notre Dame's Fitzgerald Institute for Real Estate, makes it the largest non-governmental landowner in the world. So there is incredible capacity and potential for the church to really dive into conservation. I would say in terms of how widespread is it right now, it is a little bit more piecemeal. I would say you see this, especially among religious congregations, religious orders, um, especially among women religious, where they have made environmental justice, where they have made ecological issues a primary part of their ministry for decades. And I think that's evident in our reporting too, is it wasn't kind of a coincidence that a lot of, or that the bulk of the reporting that we did was about Catholic sisters. But I would say that there it's growing. And one of the ways that we see that especially is on, under Pope Francis. So in 2015, he issued what's called an encyclical. It's basically a, a papal teaching document 
called the Dado C. And that document basically compiled the full compendium of what the Catholic Church has taught on environmental issues dating back centuries and also how different local churches and, and different nations across the world, what they have said about environmental issues. And he really framed it in the context of what the world is facing today in terms of climate change, biodiversity loss, uh, and things of this nature. And this has really been a spark um, in the Catholic Church to really start looking at this question of how does care for creation, how does environmental concerns relate to our faith? And the Vatican has been very much advocating for more and more of the church to take on this topic, to look at this question more seriously. Just in November last month, the Vatican launched what is called the Laudato Si Action Platform, which is basically this really ambitious initiative for mobilizing the global Catholic church to take on environmental issues and to take actions towards sustainability in the spirit of that encyclical Laudato Si. And I mean, it talks about really practical steps in terms of using renewable energy, looking at investments as they relate to fossil fuels or renewable energy and things like that. It also talks about land use and it talks about it across all different segments of the church, whether it's parishes and religious congregations, whether it's Catholic hospitals and healthcare systems, it's widespread. And, and the hope is to start this at the grassroots and that it would grow and grow or ultimately a majority of the church is actively participating in this. So I would say it isn't too widespread at this point, but there are definite efforts to make this a core piece of what it means to be a Catholic these days. So I have a slight follow-up on that actual question because you may be a perfect person to ask this question to. This show has been around now for almost 13, 14 years. So we covered the encyclical when the Pope released it. And then a couple of these other conversations. I personally am not that connected to the Catholic Church. And so I haven't really seen the impact of that because I haven't been, I'm not in those communities. So would you say that the encyclical really has created significant change? Or as you said, more of a spark that the change, you know, we might see now 10, 20 years down the road. It's definitely something that has not taken root as much as maybe the Vatican had hoped at this point. It, it's really been where you look. So there are countries where it has become very ingrained into what they're doing. The Philippines, for example, in a number of places in South America, for instance, in 2019, uh, the Vatican hosted a special meeting of bishops from the Amazon basin. And that was in part to look at how the church is ministering to people in those regions, but also looking at the environmental issues that is facing the Amazon. And that is a huge kind of development. That's not something that happens regularly. And that was led by different Catholic communities and bishops within the Amazon region wanting to talk about this because they realized that it was a growing concern for their community, for their people. But in the U.S., it's really been where you're looking. And there's a lot of individual parishes that are doing it. There's an organization called the Catholic Climate Covenant that has really led the charge in terms of trying to bring the encyclical, bring Laudato Si into the daily experience of what it means to be Catholic. But we haven't seen it really grabbed a hold by bishops at that diocesan level. And I think that's one area where that's been the most difficult area to get it to connect whether in the U.S. or other parts of the world, too, is getting Catholic hierarchy, getting priests comfortable talking about this and engaging it because in some cases, they're just not, it's not an area they're familiar with or it might not be a top issue of concern, but there's efforts like this Laudato Si Action Platform, which are geared towards addressing those kinds of things. Cool, thanks. I, I love having questions that I can find the right person to answer them. So I, pre I really appreciate that. Yeah, so to diving back into some of the work that you just completed, one of the articles really focused on uh, the Franciscan Sisters' land ethic. And as a environmental major, former environmental now 10 years ago, what it was, I can't help but connect that to all of Leopold's famous work about the land ethic. And so I'm curious if you can talk about that land ethic. Is it similar? Is it the same? Is it totally different? Yeah. What is the land ethic that they're bringing forward? Sure. I actually went and refreshed myself with Otto Leopold myself before this interview. 
And I think there's a lot of similarities between it. So for the sisters, and you mentioned one community, but there's a number of congregations who have established these land ethics or land statements. And they basically just put on paper their statement of what these sisters believe in terms of what is creation, what is land, what is its purpose, what is its value, what is their connection to it. And also they state their commitment to what is going to be their relationship with the land, whether the land that they have within their property, at their mother houses, their congregations, schools, hospital facilities, whatever it may be, and how does that relates to living out their values as Catholics. And for a number of them, you, I think you mentioned the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. Yeah. Their, their founder, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, is the patron saint of ecology. And a lot of the church's teachings on the environment, you can draw to him or he has really influenced. And one of them is, like I said earlier, that the land itself is valuable. Creatures, living and non-living, have value because they are created by God. And because of that, they're an expression of God. So they should be valued, they should be cherished, they should be protected. And these land ethic statements from these various congregations are really just conveying that message. In a number of cases, those land ethics actually were what started the conversation for the idea of conservation easements or what led them to a land trust and basically starting the conversation of what can we do with our land? What can we better do with it? And how can we preserve it? Not just for now, but into the future. Awesome. That makes sense. I should have made that connection to Assisi, actually. That's, that one's on me. So we covered this, I think, a little bit in my follow-up question about the encyclical. But as you sit within these circles, do you see eco-spirituality as a growing presence you know, within these communities of faith? Or is it just, again, one part of the larger ecosystem that's relatively stagnant, shall we say? I would say it's growing. It's slowly growing in a number of cases. And it, again, it's another situation where it depends where you look. With the cases, with the case of Catholic sisters, especially here in the U.S., they have been engaged in ecological spirituality, environmental issues for decades. Well before Pope Francis came on the scene, wrote Laudato Si' and issued that. For a lot of them, it was a huge confirmation of the work that they had been doing for so many years and the time that they had been spending and the connections that they made between their faith, environmental issues, justice, all of these things that they see so intertied together. The Vatican and Pope Francis have really talked about it in the words of integral ecology, that issues of the environment, social concerns are interrelated, that you can't really try to solve one set of these issues without addressing a broader set of issues. and. That is an idea I think that is starting to spread. Again, it's a little slower than some people probably want, but just the fact that it's getting into the vernacular uh, of the discussion, I think is a sign that it is growing. Awesome. And so one question I like asking someone who's done a, you've done a series of these works, you've gone around across the Midwest, as you mentioned, talking to different folks. Are there any particular stories or particular pieces of the stories that stood out to you during your work? Yeah, I'm thinking about this a little earlier, and I think one of the things was just what land conservation means. So for me, myself, when I first was reading up on it and studying it as we were doing this reporting, it came across to me that the bulk of the work to establish a land trust or to do land conservation was in creating this land trust or this agreement. And then once that was established, the work was done. But from talking to these sisters, from visiting several of these congregations, it really became clear that a conservation easement is only the beginning. It's not really a situation where you just let the land lie, that there's still work that's being done. For instance, in Dubuque, Iowa, the Sisters of St. Francis have been actively converting portions of the land that they've set aside uh, for conservation back to native prairies. That wasn't something that was going to happen on its own, or it may have just taken more time, but they're actively seeking out new plants, uh, native plants to plant on their lands, looking for things that will attract pollinators and other, and be a good resource for the animals and creatures that are on their lands. And they also do 
semi-regular controlled burns on their land as well. So there's an active component that it's not just they set aside the land and no one's touching it. But then again, there are cases like the Franciscan sisters in Rochester, Minnesota, and they set aside land at one of their retreat centers. And within that land, they designated like four acres or so as untouched wilderness. So the intent there is to allow it to continue to just be natural. It has, they've never developed that area. They've never really done any conservation efforts there. So it'll just continue to go without that human interference. So that was something that I think really just stood out to me that conservation is something that it continues. That makes sense. Well, we'll give you a chance to do uh, a last thought to end off the show in just half a second. But before we get there, I sort of thank you so much, Brian Rowey, a reporter for the Earthbeat, a project of the National Catholic Reporter, and a reporter also who just worked on a series for the Solutions Journalism Network. Thank you so much for reading your Brian. But yes, last thoughts to our listeners. They range across Canada and maybe a few in the U.S., but probably mostly Canada. So whatever you have to say, take it away. Sure. Thanks for that. And thanks for inviting me on today. It's been a fun conversation. I would say that this is an area of increasing importance within faith communities, not just the Catholic Church. And that includes in Canada. I know there's been a lot of conversation in this year in terms of the church's relationship with indigenous communities. And the history is not pretty, especially with the discovery of those burial grounds at reservation schools. I know Pope Francis is expected to meet with Canadian Indigenous leaders at some point and potentially come and visit Canada. I think that's been under discussions that we've reported. And I think that the example of that Amazon Senate, where there was a number of Indigenous leaders who were active in those discussions with church leaders about what is the best ways for conservation within the Amazon? I think those conversations extend to places like Canada on other parts of the world. And like I said, it's not just something that's limited to the Catholic Church. I was just at COP26 in Glasgow, and I saw how different faith organizations were working with indigenous communities that in some cases elevating their voices or giving them space to talk about their experiences related to how climate change has affected their lives, has affected their communities, how solutions to climate change are threatening their, their way of life as well. And I, it seems like it's going to be an area that's increasingly an area for overlap for working together. And it'll be something that we're definitely going to continue to follow. 